The Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. Joe Raboyne started his career as a landscape contractor over 25 years ago. His garden hardscape expertise and innovation led him to director of residential hardscapes at Bellgard. Bellgard is known as the trendsetter with their landscape pavers, retaining walls, fire pits, and more creative hardscape products. Joe is an avid gardener and outdoor photographer. In this episode, we'll talk with Joe about what's good to know when choosing and building your next hardscape project. Our conversation with Joe Raboyne, episode eight of the Garden Question podcast, right after this. You're invited to ask your garden design, build, or grow question at thegardenquestion.com. Not only do you get a chance to ask your own question, but you might inspire the next episode of the Garden Question podcast. So go to thegardenquestion.com and ask your question. Joe. What are hardscapes? <laughs> that's a great question. It's anything that has to do with the landscape that's the hard surface. So it could be concrete pavers, natural stone, tile. I mean, really just about anything that's masonry oriented. That's in the garden? Yeah. So it's kind of all encompassing, right? So it's it could be front of the home, could be the front walkway, the stoop, the stairs, the driveway. In the outdoor living space, a hardscape would be anything that's constructed vertically. So it could be an outdoor kitchen, freestanding seat walls, retaining wall. It's really all the the non-live portions of the landscape. What are interlocking pavers? So interlocking pavers, primarily when, when you use that terminology, they're concrete-based. They could be clay-based, but essentially they're pavers that have been designed and manufactured to a certain specification that have a spacer bar within them that kind of provides an automated reset space for sand and packed material to fill. They can be utilized for pedestrian or vehicular installations. They come in almost any type of shape or size, different textures, colors, and they They've been in North America for a little over 40 years, but they were were in Europe probably 60, 70 years total now. So they've been around for quite a while and they're growing at an exponential rate. Is that around the world or, or in the United States or both? It's really around the world. I mean, they, they were the current interlocking pavers first started in Germany. From Germany, they spread throughout Europe. They came to the United States in the early 70s and really simultaneously spread throughout the world um, around the same time. Well, why are they so popular? You know, I think, number one, they're they're beautiful. I mean, they, they provide, you know, endless styles and, and shapes and patterns. Primarily, I think, you know, they're extremely durable. I mean, the paver is designed to last for decades. Um, it'll outlive most uh, concrete and certainly most asphalt installations. So you get that combination of beauty, durability, and, and really design flexibility. So it makes for a great all-around product. Yeah, I like to think of it as being multi-generational that will carry on for several generations of folks. Yeah, absolutely. How did you get into the hardscape business? I was just talking to somebody about this the other day. So in 1987, so I'm going back a few years, we moved into an older home. My father 
did not like the busted up concrete walkway that had been out in the front for decades. One summer, he and I removed that and we put in some Holland Stone pavers. Throughout high school and through college, continued to uh, work within hardscape and masonry. And back then, it was still relatively in its infancy in the, in the area that I grew up in was outside Chicago and Milwaukee. And in 1993, started hardscaping masonry business full time. And it's interesting, back then, you really didn't have a lot of options. You had Holland Stone, some, some tumbled pavers, um, we're just starting and some geometric shapes. It was a, an extremely hard sell to sell pavers over concrete. <laughs> yeah, people th- people thought they were inferior to concrete. So, <laughs> <laughs> for those that don't know, Holland Stone is just a basic four by eight paver, right? Yeah, it's it's the basic, the bread and butter of our business. <laughs> well, how have hardscapes changed, or how have the pavers changed since you first started? Yeah, I mean, it's been you know, it's, gosh, it's been now thirty years, I guess, so just about, and. uh you know, the, the typical space back then, I would say an outdoor living space was maybe a 300 square foot patio. And that was about it. In that same time period, the variety of pavers. So we've gone from those smaller, you know, geometric shapes to these large scale textured kind of slate stone like pavers to large geometric shapes to face mix to I mean, there's, the technology is just involved incredibly. But the complexity of the spaces that they're going in is also increased tenfold, I would say just unbelievable. The- there, yeah, there's significantly more spaces being used for outdoor living now than I would think in 1993. Yeah, that's for sure. Now, my understanding is that you invented the modular fireplace. Is that right? That is right. Yep. And uh, I think I'm t- I think I'm talking to a Hall of Famer here. <laughs> I'm not sure about that. So I'll give you a quick back history on that. Throughout the 90s, we focused primarily on hardscape, but we did have masonry as well. In the late 90s, we sold off our masonry division and focused solely on outdoor living spaces. Around 2003, we started to install outdoor fireplaces with different types of burn units inside. And we did that for a few years and our business just exploded. We went from two crews to five crews in about three years. We were booked for months and months and we just could not get out. We couldn't train people fast enough to get the demand. So by a fluke in 2006, we were building out our trade show booth and we didn't have a lot of time to do it. We got a, And the booth was huge and elaborate. And so we pre-built a fireplace that was extremely heavy. In fact, it was so heavy, it took two forklifts to pick up the, the bottom unit. Mm. I had a, a eureka moment about a month later that, hey, maybe we could build these modularly and then filed for a patent and, and the rest is history, I guess. Wow. Went forward and started manufacturing them. So I didn't realize it was patented. That's uh that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's uh it's a utility patent, it's just a basic uh patent. Yeah, it's been an interesting ride. So to go from contractor to where I'm at today, I've kind of seen all sides of the business. <laughs> yeah. I think that's invaluable experience because a lot of times people will be in a position and, and never done what they're supervising. Yeah, I mean it's uh I think for better or worse, I mean, I'm probably, I'm always questioning and trying to drive things forward. And I do have that back history. So it's, it's, uh, it is in the role I'm at today. It is a valuable um, asset to have for sure. Was this in Milwaukee that you started this? It was. Yep. Yeah. And and originally we started just selling them in the Midwest and the Northeast. And then uh, a couple of years later, it was really when we came on throughout the country with Old Castle and boomed ever since. And now it's been over a decade, I guess. Yeah. So that's moving (laughs) fast. Yeah, I like the modular fireplace because it delivers a huge impact with very little effort on your outdoor space. So, yeah, thank you. 
that's a that's a big hit right there. I appreciate that. Thanks. You know, you can struggle with a fireplace for several weeks. This is really a day operation, I would think, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, there there's it depends on the site conditions. You know, they are designed to be laid on a, a reinforced, uh, compacted base. So if you have proper soil conditions, you actually could just put in more gravel and just place it right on there because they're they're essentially a monolithic unit. You can also, if you want, pour a slab and do more elaborate footings, but it shouldn't take anybody more than a few hours to install a whole unit. So it's extremely fast. And ready to be warmed by the fire that night, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the, the first modular fireplace and uh, grill island that we installed was on one of our clients back when we were contracting in Milwaukee. And this is one of those, I guess it's typical if you're in this business, you know, we were behind, it was summer. They actually had a, um, a wedding rehearsal dinner scheduled at their home that weekend. And we were days from being complete. The fireplace and the grill out were not done. Everything else was done. And the homeowner, I saw him in the morning and he he was actually, he's pretty upset with me. He said, you know, I've got this party and I don't know what I'm going to do. And I said, don't worry, it'll be done. He couldn't believe it. He goes, there's no way you guys have been here for a week. I said, I promise it will be done. (laughs) So as soon as he left, our truck showed up. Within two hours, we had the fireplace and the grill island installed. We installed the mulch and the plants. And he came home about one o'clock as we were cleaning up out in the street. And he saw me out there and he he actually got upset again. He goes, I can't believe you guys are leaving. I, you know, the job's not done. I go, no, the, job, the job's done. And and, uh, and then we walked in the backyard and he was absolutely floored. <laughs> he just, he, he didn't, because I didn't tell him we were doing it modularly, but it was completely done. The fire was lit. We had music playing. Like yeah. he ended up having the party and it was a huge hit. So, yeah. <laughs> I bet. Can you do these with gas or wood or how do you fire them? Most of them are are wood burning. That's how they come. But we make a a combination so that you can. There's some block in the back and there's a knockout where you can plumb them for gas. So you could put a log lighter in or, you know, gas log set. We do have some that are only gas. We've got some that are more contemporary, kind of linear. They're see-through that are are only gas burning. So, and those can be natural gas or propane. In some parts of the country, you you can't have an open fire. You can't have fire at all, right? Yeah. uh, A lot of major cities um, and some states are outlawing wood burning units. Or if you use them, they require a fire permit. which nobody wants to spend the time to get. I haven't run into a place yet that does not allow a gas burning unit. So with gas, you get the benefit of being able to put them almost anywhere you want. There's really almost no setback requirements. And, you know, they're, they're simple. They're no mess to gather wood and clean it out and all that. Because of that, we're seeing a big shift happen throughout North America where it's still 75% wood burning, but it's probably being taken over 5 to 10% a year by gas burning units. And that will quickly become the norm in many areas. Is there a fire pit type alternative or are we just left out in the cold on that? You know, for fire pits, it's the same thing. You know, there's there's all types of gas burning, both LP and natural gas uh, options that are round, square, linear. And in fact, we're just starting to launch some new products and kits essentially that offer those different pieces. And those can have, you know, different types of beaded glass or stone, different types of media for the, the top portion to really add some interest to it. You know, and as far as wood burning units, I mean, there are there is technology, there are smoke units now that are pretty fascinating um, that actually kind of almost reburn and draft better than a typical wood burning unit does. A lot of technology that's uh, transforming these units for sure. What direction is outdoor living trending? You know, it's funny. I, a big part of my job now is working with product development and marketing and, and really understanding that. 
For me, outdoor living is just absolutely exploding. It was exploding before COVID hit, but COVID, I think, just kicked it into high gear. People are at home. They're they're not traveling. They're not getting together with friends and family. And so what we're seeing is that they're realizing that, number one, they need these spaces to have a better connection with their neighbors and their in the, in the local environment, the natural environment. There's been a shift in thinking about these spaces in a, in a way where they're not just a nice to have place to party on the weekend. They're kind of the space that is really fundamental to your overall health and well-being. They're utilizing them in different ways. Some people are working out there, you know, working remote. They're they're doing yoga. They're interested in outdoor movies and music and pollinator gardens. The whole idea of outdoor living is just, it's transforming, I would say, before our eyes. Because of that, it's affecting what we're doing with marketing, what we're doing with product development, and, and really how we're approaching the whole space at every level. It's a great time to be in the industry. I mean, there's there's absolutely no other industry, I think, at this point that's so hot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My perspective has changed on outdoor living because I've come to realize as I design and build these spaces, families that I build them for, the people I build them for, there's so many significant life events happening in them, like weddings and mm-hmm. and parties and like you say, telecommuting. It really has changed my perspective and how significant they are to your customers. I mean, that's what drives me. I I think about the impact we have. And it may sound like it's sometimes superficial to to look at it this way, but these spaces really do have an impact on people's lives and really do improve them. No matter how big or small, I mean, these are huge investments and people, you know, they're excited about these spaces and it's a fun thing to to be a part of, right? It's not like we're putting in plumbing. We're not, not not there's anything wrong with some of those things, but this is a a beautiful visual space that can really change people. So pretty cool space to be in. Yeah. And you surround it with a garden. You're just really connecting folks back to nature in a very high tech world that we live in now. Yeah, absolutely. Often a landscape or garden site is slow. Well, at least in Atlanta. (laughs) And retaining walls give us the ability to gain more usable space. What would you need to think about before you build a retaining wall? Yeah, so that's a great question. And by the way, I moved to Atlanta six years ago, so I I definitely relate. My my yard, in fact, has a 50-foot drop-off to a creek in the back. Oh, whoa. So, <laughs> uh, but yeah, so yeah, absolutely. Retaining walls in almost every environment can help extend the space. Prior to that was relatively unusable space for anything like this. So the biggest considerations for walls are whether they're a cut or a fill wall. A cut wall, you're basically cutting into a hill and a fill wall, you're kind of extending the hill out. And those are treated differently because one, you're worried more about the surcharge coming down from the hill you're cutting into. And the other one, you're worried about the fill and the compaction more and how that is being treated. Just a couple of rules of thumb. I mean, generally when the wall is over three feet, regardless whether it's cut or fill, probably should be looked at by an engineer, or at least you should fully understand the guidelines necessary to construct something like that. Those typically involve geogrid, which is a tieback, and definitely have to consider proper drainage. Water is the biggest enemy to walls because that amount of pressure and that builds up and the weight that pushes on them are what would cause them to fail. Compared to 30 years ago, there's a hundred different solutions for walls, every application, every budget, every aesthetic. So just do your research and ask questions. And we've got teams in place that can that definitely have the experience to, to help you construct the the best wall for your for your site and application. Now you said surcharge. Tell us what surcharge means. Is that a tax the local government gives you? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a different story, but yeah. Um, <laughs> so sur- surcharge is really the weight and the pressure that's being applied to that wall. It comes from a combination of the weight that's above hill or is on top of it. So if you're cutting into a hill and that hill continues to go up another hundred feet for hundreds of yards or miles, even all that weight 
and that gravity is pushing down on that, is sliding down that hill essentially. So you have to take into account what you need to do to stop that essentially. The other surcharge is if you're on a fill site, so let's say you need to fill in to build out a driveway, right? There's a lot of weight pushing directly down on it from the weight of the vehicles or structures that are above it. And in some cases, and you see it around a lot around Atlanta, I mean, they're even building entire homes that are built on filled walls that you have all that weight pushing down on it. So to exacerbate both of those is when you get water, especially in the spring or after heavy range that would soak that soil and migrate through it, that amount of additional water. It's like a huge dam is going to have to pass through that wall. And the walls are designed so that you know, with proper drainage, some water will go through the backside, through a, a gravel layer and out some tile, or a small portion may go right through the front of the wall. And all that's taken into consideration when they're engineered and designed. So we're trying to relieve the pressure on that wall, the pushing down pressure from the top, and then you're on the level part that you created the fill part of it being cut might be part of it being filled where you've balanced the soil on that site between the two walls then you're pushing right. down on that lower wall with pressure and which has increased tremendously with the when it's got water in it is that yes okay. yes exactly yep yeah so absolutely right so side of it is is and you think about the drainage that happens around that wall you want to make sure any surface water that's that's running in that area it goes around the wall not through it or at least is caught in by catch basin yeah. is diverted <laughs> so it's not passing over the top of it yeah i've always wondered you see these things drawn up in profile and i wonder why they run those slopes right up to the edge of the cap and don't show swell around it and that you want run water around it I, I have customers that want to solve water issues by building retaining walls and tell them they're, they're not dams you're not we're not building a <laughs> dam here you know yeah. we've got to control this water and it needs to go around it and Usually we find them a really good solution on that. Yeah, for sure. All right. Now I've heard garden walls. What is a garden wall versus a retaining wall? When you hear that terminology, I mean, typically garden walls are much smaller. They're a smaller block. They're, you know, they're maybe no more than eight inches deep. And they're usually just built up for either raised beds or almost like in some cases borders. So, you know, you see these a lot in the front of a home, for example, where you know it's built up maybe a foot. There's not really a lot of pressure on them. I mean, you've got a little bit of soil behind it, but normally if they're under two feet, smaller block. There's not as big a concern about them coming over because the sheer mass of the garden block and the wall itself is going to retain that little bit of space behind them. Is it used as a defining of space too? Yeah, yeah, exactly. A lot of them are almost like borders or you know, kind of flank sidewalks or patios. Yeah, it kind of helps define that space for sure. In your early years before going into business, what are some of your earliest garden memories? That's a great question. I grew up out in the country. Had a, in fact, my first business was I grew uh, cantaloupes with my brother. And so we, we had a big family, didn't have a lot of money. So my father grew up on a farm. He said, let's plant a huge garden. We lived, we had about 10 acres. We grew about two acres of melons, you know, as a fourth grader harvesting these. And I think I made about a thousand dollars my first summer. That was what got me hooked on entrepreneurship. That'd <laughs> <laughs> do it fast. Yeah. Yeah. I got a, in fact, I, I sold them to a local grocery store for a dollar a piece. So if they were perfect, we put them in, brought them into the truck. Wow. You know, made a couple hundred bucks every <laughs> pallet I brought in. So yeah. In, in the, in the uh, early 80s, that was a lot of money for a, a, a young kid back then. Yeah, yeah. But I, you know, I think for me, it wasn't just that. It was just being out of nature. And I just, you know, you, you get that in your blood, right? Being oh yeah, out working with plants and, and soil and there's nothing like it. Any other memories? 
When I did that first walkway that I mentioned earlier, you know, just the satisfaction of taking something that was broken and ugly, that old sidewalk that had been there forever and putting in something that was new and beautiful. And I mean, it's just, I, I don't think there's anything like it. I mean, I think even today, I, I, you know, I love what I do and I, I'm happy to be in the industry and blessed to be in the industry, but there's nothing that uh, gives you the satisfaction of actually building something physically with your hands especially if you designed it from the start and then kind of walking through that experience and then witnessing your clients enjoying this new space is just extremely satisfying. I agree. Being able to take the vision that you have and, and then turn it into reality is to me is just very rewarding. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. In your professional career, who has been the biggest influencer? Probably, I would have to say my wife initially. She's my was my business partner. <laughs> And, uh, and my biggest cheerleader. <laughs> There's been a lot of people over the years. I mean, sometimes I can recall some clients who, by accident, I think, have mentored me in some ways about how to go about business. And if I had to pick one person, I would say probably my father. My father was a, a, a contractor and a carpenter and just taught me how to respect and treat people well. I think more than anything, it's what we do isn't always rocket science. I think sometimes we like to think it is, but if you do what you say you're going to do and you provide a good product and you stand behind it, you're going to make mistakes. But if you keep doing that, you're going to be successful over time, right? It's just your business is built on your reputation. And regardless of whether you're in business or in, in, in a business, it's they call it your personal brand, but I would say it's your it's your integrity, right? It's what, yes. At the end of the day, what, what, what makes everything go around. I would like for you to complete this statement. In my garden, I have... In my garden, I have I have lots and lots of flowers. <laughs> my my uh, in fact, my neighbors probably think I'm a little crazy. I'm always outside, always adding and and moving things and and working on my garden. I just for me, it's it's relaxing. They look at I think that it's hard work, but for me, it's it's extremely rewarding and it's a great place for me to de stress. And I think if you're in this business. Any, for any amount of time, you really get an appreciation for the natural world. So I'm constantly adding things like birdhouses. I'm trying to introduce different flowers for pollinators, for example, and just thinking about how what I'm doing can improve just even my small little corner of the world, you know. And yeah. uh, for me, that's as I've, as I've gotten older, that's become more important to me than I would say it was when I was younger, for sure. Well, you said earlier that once it gets in your blood, it, it's hard to get it out. So Absolutely. that that hand in the soil. What's your favorite tree? Uh, you know, I, I've got a couple of them. I love white pines and bur oak trees, I would say. And bur oaks, and both of them, they kind of, as they age, they get all distorted and they're never quite the same. When you see one, you know, a limb breaks off and they kind of grow one way or the other. It's just like, they just, I think it's, I think they're just really interesting yeah, trees. Yeah. So what's your favorite blooming plant? Boy, I, I love hydrangeas of any type. I think they're just, I think they're awesome looking and, you know, I mean, I've, I've got a ton, but <laughs> that'd probably be my favorite, I would say. Do you like ornamental grasses? I do. I've got a whole bunch of different types here. Yep. And I love, I actually, I keep them up most of the winter to provide habitat. Yeah. I love the colors as they change and the texture. And I, and I'm glad to see people have switched over to more natural types of landscapes. I think it, they're easier to maintain somewhat. Um <laughs> And I, I just, it's just all around better for the local wildlife. I've got an interview that you'll want to hear with a couple of native plant people and lady that does a lot of hummingbirds and, and butterflies. So when I release that. Awesome. Oh, man, it's, you inspired me. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> all those guys inspired me there. One of the most fascinating things for me is moving, you know, from, you know, a, a zone five environment to Georgia <laughs> and, and, yeah. and just seeing the, the, the length of the season and the variety of 
plants, na- native and you know local plants that are here. I mean, it's just like a wild, the wild azaleas, the magnolias, all the different types of flowers that bloom. So I'm, I'm an avid hiker, so I'm always out photographing and looking at different native plants. Most of them I haven't seen before. So Yeah. Where do you like to hike? Uh, we go up into the mountains, up in the North Georgia mountains all the time, um, mm-hmm. all over the place. It's, it's just uh, it's beautiful up there. What do you like to photograph the most? You know, I, people make fun of me if they follow me on Facebook because I'm out. I go walking or hiking almost every day, and I try to at least. So if I capture a scene of a, you know, it could be a flower, or a tree, or some type of water environment, the sky doesn't doesn't matter. So I'm always looking out for uh, what's what's beautiful out there in, in God's creation. So yeah, yeah, beautiful and cool too. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> There'll be more Garden Hardscape talk right after this. TheGardenQuestion.com is an awesome website because we expand each podcast episode with accurate resources and links for gardeners. You can also listen to every single episode again as many times as you like. Think of it as an extension of the podcast at TheGardenQuestion.com. Do you have any experience overlaying pavers on existing concrete? I do. I actually... um... I covered my driveway and walkway about four years ago. Mm-hmm. I d- had done a lot of research and we uh, introduced a, a new product at the time called Drybon. It actually was a product that came out of Florida. It had been there for quite a while. So my driveway was about 25 years old, had some cracks in it and just kind of looked tired. Came in, we ground down some of the transitions by the road and by the garage. Within about two days, we had the, the whole thing installed. So I'm a huge believer in that. I, originally, I wasn't so sure. I mean, it's it's something our industry hasn't done a lot of. When you look at the pros, mm-hmm. I mean, they're, I'll, I'll talk through quickly some of the pros and cons. The pros is extremely fast. You use half the material. There's almost no mess. There's no tear up, no 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 movement that way. Shipping's less. To me, there's just an absolutely unprecedented opportunity to expand people's businesses by by looking at some of those. The challenges are where there are cracks, you have to really discern whether or not that crack could be, is it too large? And if it is, it may need to be cut out. You may need to pin it to the slab surrounding it. You may want to also put on some uh, isolation membranes, which are pretty commonly used with tile work. So if there are cracks and you get some movement, you don't, that crack hopefully doesn't transition up through that overlay. So I think it's an Mm -hmm. up and coming thing for sure in the South, the North we're still doing some testing on because of the freeze thaws up there, but definitely a, a, some something that to look into. If- yeah, I've done some of the overlays. I, I was a little skeptical on myself about it. Uh, I did a significant project with it this last year. It also had the traditional packed aggregate base. Mm-hmm. We were weaving them in and out together because we were expanding space from the existing concrete. Then we would transition to the overlay, which is kind of tricky, and but it worked. One thing that I found out too that I wasn't really prepared for is you got to make sure your underlayment, your existing concrete drains properly, okay. that it doesn't drain in the opposite direction. So yeah. we we built up a, a good bit at one particular point where it was kicking water back into what used to be a bed, but was going to become a traditional paver area. Uh, yeah, yeah. I didn't want to report. <laughs> I just, just soon cut it out and just go traditional. I guess you don't have to worry about a lot of waste in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, what to do with all that concrete that you dig up when you do that overlay? Yeah, no, that's definitely a consideration. Yeah, because you're you're going with whatever's there is there unless you grind it out or report. <laughs> 
I'm looking at projects now where the existing pavers were taken up. One, because the driveway needed to be relocated for a home addition, and the other project for a septic tank line addition. Do you see any snags in relaying those existing pavers in those areas? One of the beauties of, of the interlocking concrete pavers is you can't pull them up and reuse them. Structurally, there's no issue at all with that, and we see that actually happen quite often. If they still make that size and style, you can even extend those and expand on it. Although you may want to blend them in because the the surface may look slightly different. How do you rejuvenate an old paver? There's a whole variety of different chemicals that can treat pavers. So um, that can, number one, clean them and use, you know, there's cleaners for rust, for oil, you know, for any kind of uh, discoloration that happens, even if it's like organics, like for leaves, for example. Once they're clean, then you can use different types of sealer that are either penetrating or kind of surface applied. You can essentially choose almost any finish you want, kind of like paint. So you can choose different types of sheen if you want it flat or matte or gloss. There's sealers that can be used for all those. And for pavers that are extremely worn, you know, let's say they've been around for 30, 40 years, you can even apply a sealer that has a a tint to it that'll kind of bring that color back and enhance that color. Once there's applied them, essentially they'll look like brand new again. Do those sealers need to be compatible with the joint sand? You know, they do. Most of them will go over any any type of joint sand, but some of them will uh, have what they call a joint stabilizing sealer. So they, they soak in a little bit more and can go in and kind of lock up that sand if it's just traditional sand, not polymeric sand. So really designed for just about every application. The most important thing with any sealer is to make sure that the surface is thoroughly clean and dry. You don't want any moisture on the surface. Now, you mentioned polymeric sand. What is that? Uh, polymeric sand came out, I would say, geez, probably 20 years ago now. And essentially, it has a bonded modified polymer within the sand. It's treated uh, just like sand. And when you see it, if you didn't know any better, you'd think it was sand. But once it goes in, compacted in, swept in, you activate it with water. And the water essentially goes in and, and makes it similar to like latex fortified grout, if you're used to tile terminology, where it, it bonds with the paver. It allows some flexibility as that pavement moves and shifts throughout the year. Why is that important? It's extremely important. I mean, number one, it keeps sand from kind of migrating. Um, So you look at in terms of maintenance, it'll prevent sand from shifting around. It'll prevent ants from getting in there, from weeds from growing in there. It really completes the pavement. I hear even today, I still hear uh, oftentimes from contractors say, yeah, I don't I don't really need that. A regular sand works well, but it really is the best way to complete a pavement. I mean, it's the right way to complete it because of the benefits of that I just mentioned. It does add a little bit to the cost. When you look at some of these projects, it's such a minimal upgrade that I, I use the analogy. It'd be like selling somebody a Cadillac, but not selling them power windows because you want to save a few hundred dollars. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so it's, it's that important, I think. Will it blow out when I use my leaf blower on it? No, it won't. And, and there's different ways to apply it. There's there's different, a couple different varieties of it. But if it's flooded in properly, it'll activate the entire depth of the joint. And once it's done, it, it's essentially like mortar. So leaf blowers, none of that will blow that sand around. It'll act as one surface. At one time, I designed all my projects by hand on paper. And then I decided to go to a computer-aided design system. I believe the speed and efficiency allowed me to be more creative and explore more design concepts for projects. I understand you have taken computer-aided design to a whole new level. Would you tell us about that? Back in the day when I was a contractor, I, I hand-sketched everything. And I spent hours and hours sometimes sketching one project, you know, come to find out they hated it and they want me to start over. <laughs> so about a decade ago, we started working with computer design. Back then, it was still relatively in its infancy. The reason was for, for me at that point, we were actually, it was when we were selling elements and it was um, to help our contractors 
manufacturers sell projects. And what we found was that as soon as they introduced these types of designs and people could see them so visually that the closure rates were astronomical. In fact, it was true then and it's still true today when using a, a computer design, and again, provided that you have a great reputation and you know all the other things are kind of there <laughs> in place, these contractors are closing about three quarters of these sales using computer design. What's fascinating is that technology is really built off of the same technology that the computer games are built on. So a lot of that modeling is being shared across platforms. What that means for us is that the quality of this continues to improve exponentially and the speed of it. Over that 10-year period, what may have taken five or six hours to design back then, we can do sometimes now in an hour or less, and the quality is 10 times what it was. So for our industry, I think computer design will completely revolutionize it. It's still not the norm. I would say it's still maybe 20% of contractors are utilizing it. What we've done at, at Belgard is we actually created a Belgard Design Studio where for our contracting partners, we will convert their designs totally for free because we believe in it so much and, and know how powerful it is. We're willing to kind of take that upfront cost of helping contractors do that. If they want to do their own or, or are doing their own, we would, you know, we'll share assets with them and, and, and work together in any way we can to make sure that we're all successful in that sale. So how does the end user, the customer, see that design? Is it just on their computer screen? We actually have an app that we release so they can view it and it's all cloud-based. We'll send the content back via video or individual render photo. They can present that iPad, iPhone, or laptop, or really the best way to present it is to try and hook up to someone's 85-inch TV, which seems like everybody has these days. Mm -hmm. And they're in, and these the quality is in 4K resolution, so you could present on there. That's really the best way because it really connects emotionally with client. And when they see their home in this rendered out environment, and by the way, they're used to and expected to seeing these by watching HGTV and whatever design program that they're used to on TV, they're just blown away by it. So it's a powerful sales tool. So I don't have to have goggles or anything like that to watch? You don't have to. We do offer uh, VR, virtual reality exports. If you if you have goggles and we can walk you through all that, you can certainly do that. That's, that's kind of an, an additional step that some clients really like because it's completely immersive. But otherwise, yeah, you could just look at it through some of those other methods I mentioned. What are the trends that you're seeing in Hardscape? The number one trend, which has really become a staple, is a fire pit. I mean, almost every project that we see come through has a fire pit or a fireplace. In terms of overall design, I, I think the spaces are getting larger and more elaborate, kind of as a rule of thumb. It's becoming more of an expectation. It's funny, even builders today, not even more than a few years ago, a lot of them wouldn't even talk to us about outdoor spaces. And now they're coming, I need to offer an outdoor space as part of my new home package or people aren't interested in my home. It's becoming, like I said, kind of that expectation. In terms of overall design trends, things are definitely becoming more linear and modular. Many less curved lines and kidney-shaped patios as has been the norm years ago, which is great for contractors. It's less cutting it's less dust, you know. And so the other part of that that's kind of coinciding with is larger format. We're seeing a shift toward very large scale pavers. In some markets, 24 by 36 inch or 36 by 36, mm. all mechanically installed. Sleeker, kind of cleaner surfaces. So kind of trending away. And again, this isn't in every market. It's just kind of an overall theme we're seeing. Trending away from those natural stone textures more to just smooth tops, kind of really clean edges. 
mm-hmm. and in very light or very dark tones. So either almost white or very light grays all the way up to charcoals and dark, dark brown colors. So getting away from these three color blends and going more to these kind of tone on tone or monochromatic color schemes. If you look at that shift from 20 years ago, everything was very rustic and tumbled and natural. And a lot of this, I think, is cyclical. I think you're going to see some of these trends kind of come and go and come back. And, and in some pockets of the country, in certain areas, like in the mountains, for example, or along the coast, a lot of those trends are going to just be timeless, right? They're going to be rustic or they're going to be certain types of, of pavers that are always going to be popular in those markets. But when you're talking about those significantly larger pavers, is that the porcelain type pavers? Is that what we're looking at or talking about? Yeah, so the porcelain generally, as a rule of thumb, are larger. The the smallest ones that we sell are two foot squares. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have one foot by four foot planks, but we have in some pockets three foot by four foot. (laughs) Um, You can special order actually three foot by six foot. Those are the exception. And I don't know if it's some of that's being driven purely by aesthetics or by homeowners that are looking for you know fewer lines for less maintenance, for example. Probably a combination of the two. What about on porcelain? I know that people that I've talked with about that are, are concerned about it being slick. Porcelain pavers that we sell have actually all been molded off of actual samples of wood and, and natural stone. The texture is actually married up where the color is applied. The slip coefficient is actually taken into account that they're actually very good and designed to be used around pools and exterior spaces. And a lot of people associate that porcelain with what they have on the interior of the home. And most of the porcelain on the interior does not have that type of texture. Mm -hmm. The slip coefficient has not been considered as much as it is outside where they know there's always going to be water on them. They look similar, but they're really totally different products. I didn't know that. How easy are pavers to maintain? They're installed properly where you have the compacted granule base, polymeric sand. If you put a sealer on them, the most you probably have to do is just blow off the leaves every once in a while. If you do have a sealer on it, depending on the type of sealer, that may need to be reapplied every five to 10 years. Other than that, probably the most easy and low maintenance product out there in the market for hardscape, like you know some of the decking materials or even like concrete. I mean, concrete, typically you're going to have to clean that quite often. And if you have a crack, you really can't fix it. There's definitely a lot of benefits in terms of being low maintenance. Now, being from Milwaukee, this is going to be right in your wheelhouse. How big of a problem is snow and ice removal on pavers? They're actually perfectly designed for snow and ice removal. Number one, in those markets, you get a lot of expansion and contraction and heaving with frost. And in some cases, it can go down 10 feet even in the winter. If you have heavy clays, it can move and expand. And every other type of product will crack and shift and move. Pavers kind of act like a blanket. So they'll come up and down with that heave. They won't crack, obviously, because there's micro joints everywhere. Most of them are designed where they have a chamfered edge. So if you're in a plow or shovel it, if one were up even just a little bit, it'll still just glide right over the top. You add that with the combined PSI strength of the concrete versus poured concrete, it's generally, as a rule of thumb, two to three times stronger. So it's much more able to uh, withstand that freeze-thaw cycle, you know, salt and some of the other chemicals that are applied. It's just a much denser, durable product. What is a chamfered edge? Chamfered edge is really the treatment that surrounds the edge of the paver. Chamfer, it's like a bevel essentially. And that could either be a really crisp edge or it could be more of a natural kind of built-in bevel to it. Kind of rounded off lightly. Yep, exactly. Freeze-thaw cycle in Milwaukee, and that's obviously different from Atlanta. Right. Where do you make the changes in application? Is Are the aggregate bases the same? Or are they different in those two parts of the country? You know, in the north, it should be very similar. So if you look at pedestrian application, you know, as a rule of thumb, they'll say like six inches of aggregate base. In Milwaukee or in the northern climate, you may go a little bit thicker than that, but six inches should be sufficient. For a driveway, I'd say it's probably where it changes the most. And a lot of those climates, you probably 
probably go at least 12 inches. You'd probably use a geotextile under that to keep it from migrating in. If it's installed and compacted properly, drained properly, there shouldn't be that big of a difference between a climate like that or one here in Atlanta. Education and certification, how significant is that? For us, it's really important. I mean, our industry grown exponentially and, and there's always people coming and going from it. For us at Belgard, I mean, having authorized contracting partners is key because we do an incredible amount of marketing and we want to make sure the homeowner is presented with the best possible final product as, as they can get. And so as part of that, you know, we are heavily invested in creating training programs and working with organizations like ICPI and NCMA on the training certification for our contractors. And it's something that's ever evolving. And as these spaces evolve, you know, that training's evolving. Something that we're, we're committed to and hoping to continue to invest in. Tell us about Belgard and how people can connect with them. Belgard is based here in Atlanta, Georgia, but we like to say we have a national, in fact, a North American presence, and but we have a local touch. We're a collection of companies that have come from been mom and pops and are part of this great organization. So if you're interested in partnering with us, I would say reach out on our website. That was one great way to do it. We have reps and locations throughout North America. We are extremely committed to our partners. We know without our contractors and dealers' success, we we really have nothing. And we truly believe that and know that. And so as part of that, we're, we'll work with you in any possible way we can, no matter where you're at in terms of your business. If you're uh, an end-user homeowner, wh- how would you connect with Belgar? Uh, I would say start with our website as well. I mean, that's a, a great way to just see what our products are. You can look up our, our contractors and dealers on the site as well. Lots of them have showrooms and got great teams. So that's probably the best place to start. Really appreciate the time and, and having me on. Joey Boyne, thank you for sharing your insights and expertise on the eighth episode of the Garden Question Podcast. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time. Please generously share the Garden Question Podcast with your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Check out our website, thegardenquestion.com, for links, resources, and where you can listen to every episode again and again. You will not want to miss a weekly episode, so please subscribe to the Garden Question Podcast with Craig McManus on your favorite listening app. Keep on designing, building, and growing a smarter garden that works.